Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. It's my honor to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Felix Zuloff. Felix, great to have you here. How have you been? I've been great, Jack. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really honored and pleased to be with you again. The honor and pleasure is all mine. Felix, we sat down a year ago in December of 2021, and you said that 2022 could be a very unique year and to expect a lot of volatility. Uh, needless to say, that has come true. What stands out to you over the past year in 2022? It's been such a strange year. Uh, what, are, what, what did you have your eye on? To me, it was not a strange year. To me, it was uh, more or less as expected. Uh, I predicted uh, a big decline, and that happened. And I expected the decline to be very volatile, which also happened. Uh, the biggest uh, change, I think, is what's happening in the global geopolitical arena, uh, really. And, and I think most uh, investors are not aware of it or do not give it as much credit as they should uh, when analyzing the world going forward. China is a more important trading partner to the vast majority of countries in the world than the US. This is a big change and the Western world hasn't realized it because we are still looking at the world through our Western glasses of the last few decades, where the US was the hegemon, set the stage, uh, dictated what has to happen, uh, in geopolitics, in military, in economics, etc., etc., And we believe that we can still analyze the world that way. That's not the case. We have a conflict that is building, which I alluded to in many of my reports over the last few years. Uh, it's the classic Thucydides trap, where you have the hegemon that is um, trying to keep uh, the challenger, the upcoming challenger, under control. And that leads to a conflict. And I think that conflict will intensify over the years. It has led also to a war in the Ukraine. This is part of the conflict. And, and it has all sorts of uh, implications. It will uh, lead to an e economic situation where our economies will function much more like a war economy where you have uh, occasional disruptions and uh, supply chain uh, distortions, uh, etc. And, and that is not the way we are used to analyze the world economy. And, and I think it also has implications for the currencies. It has implications for the commodity markets, etc. And when uh, the U.S. used... Uh, uh, the dollar as a political weapon, as did the European Union, uh, it means that the value of those currencies in the long term will decline because all those nations that are not very close and extremely friendly with those guys um, will not store their savings, so to speak, in those currencies any longer. So it has tremendous implications. I, I think we are at the, at the big going through a process of huge long-term changes over the next few years. So it's, it's a big change. It, it means that the dominant role is not the way it used to be. It is much weakened. 
and it's not recognized. Look at the G7. Uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago, the G7 were the seven dominating largest economies. Out of the G7, you have four, Great Britain, France, Germany, and Italy, all together are smaller than China. <laughs> you see? Uh, and India is, um, is bigger than France uh, and, and, and things like that. It's a changing world and it has implications. It's not just going to continue uninterrupted uh, like it did in the past uh, 10 or 20 years. It's different. And Felix, what are things that were true when the hegemony of the U.S. was unquestioned and dominant that may no longer be true when China is, could now be eating the U.S.'s lunch? And I'm you know, talking about currencies, talking about asset prices, the economy, central banks, everything. What used to be true uh, that may no longer be? Okay. Uh, if we had a problem with the supply of oil, the U.S. could uh, call up um, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and tell them that we have a contract, uh, we protect your government and you sell all your oil for dollars and uh, there is not enough oil around, please increase the supply of oil. Now, I think that contract is dead because Saudi Arabia will sell, will start selling oil for Remnimbi to China. That means the contract is dead. Uh, in the coming weeks, there is a big conference in the Middle East where usually the U.S. president was invited as the keynote speaker. This time, it's President Xi from China, not the U.S. Uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, rumored to be building missiles based on Chinese technology. So it has changed. <laughs> this is just an example. Felix, a year ago, you predicted... U.S. equities to, to fall something in the range of 20 to 25 percent. So you kind of nailed it on the nose. Did it happen for the reasons that you expected? And I'll, I'll throw out three things. Number one is economy slowing, so earnings going down or growth of earnings going down. Number two is the liquidity deteriorating. And number three is interest rates are higher, so valuations should come down. Which has been the dominant player of that? And going forward, uh, how is your outlook on equities, but U.S. equities shaped by these three factors? Um, the most dominant factor is liquidity or excess liquidity, as we call it, uh, what is left in the financial system that is not being used by the real economy. Uh, that liquidity is still deteriorating, in my view. Uh, it has improved a little bit uh, over the last uh, six weeks or so, and that's why we had a temporary uh, recovery attempt uh, in the markets. Uh, I think it will um, deteriorate again, liquidity. And therefore, I think the spare market bounce uh, is over and we go lower. And I, I think we go into a final low uh, sometimes in, uh, in late first quarter or something like that. Um, earnings have not deteriorated as much as I expected because the corporate sector was uh, able to improve their profit margins in the U.S., uh, in many of the European countries, not in Germany, but in, in other European countries. And that, uh, and that really meant or resulted in earnings doing better than I expected. I think that is coming to an end uh, because of the economy slowing, uh, because of uh, too high inventories uh, in all three regions, Asia, Europe, and the US. I believe that with weakening final demand, they will have to cut prices of their products. And therefore, 
I expect profit margins to come under pressure and so will uh, earnings and uh, we have you know we have a situation where the US economy is very diff pretty different from Europe and China uh, China is the weakest of all the economies as I see it. China is in a very serious recession uh, do not look at the numbers because they may not reflect the, the real truth but China is in the worst recession since at least 2008, if not since the early 1990s. And, uh, and Europe and UK uh, is entering a severe recession in the first half of uh, next year. And this together is very bearish for multinational companies. And uh, if 50% of the S&P 500 earnings comes from overseas, they come from those regions. And therefore, I think the S&P earnings will decline much more in the first half of 23 than GDP decline would suggest or weakening of uh, GDP w would suggest. And I think that is uh, missed by many of the analysts. So I think we have had the correction so far was a valuation correction due to rising interest rates. I think what's ahead is a correction based on uh, declining earnings or declining earnings guidance uh, and that will lead to the final low. Whether the final low will be hit in first quarter or not really depends on how the world evolves. If um, we have a credit event, that would probably be uh, the end of the decline. Uh, a credit event is if uh, a company is uh, highly levered and the fundamentals go against them and they default. And usually you find those companies in areas where the leverage is the highest and, and where you had a huge credit boom before and uh, where the balance sheets are weak and that's China. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a major credit event happening in China. If that happened, it would mean that the Chinese have to support the economy and they will. Uh, but they cannot go full speed because if they did and stimulate like the U.S. would do, it would mean that the renminbi went down dramatically. And then we would have uh, an Asian crisis like in 97. And it would jeopardize uh, China's long-term goals in trade in Asia and in politics. And it would also backfire to the Western world. And that's why I think as soon as we have a major credit event, Somewhere in the world, most likely in Asia, but somewhere in the world, I think the Fed will change course. It doesn't and have to happen in the U.S. It doesn't have to happen in the U.S. I think the Fed has also a, a global responsibility and they know that. And if they didn't, if they didn't change at that point of time, we would enter a serious calamity on a global basis. And I think they want to avoid that. Felix, it's brilliant. You just answered the, the question I was about to ask, which is earlier on, you painted quite a grim picture of declining early earnings all around the world. What would it, what would uh, cause equities to bottom in the, the first quarter of 2023 if uh, interest rates are still high and uh, earnings are, are going down? I get you answered it. It's, it's liquidity that central banks will pivot. We will at last get the central bank pivot. Absolutely. But we will get it only if we, if we get them pushed by certain developments. 
the ideal development would be a credit event. It will be accompanied by declining inflation rates, I think, because commodity prices are coming down. Uh, import prices will come down because we get the whiff of deflation out of China. Uh, and, and the base effect will also help. So I think those three factors will bring inflation down, probably not to the 2% uh, the Fed and other central banks uh, would like to see, but the trend will be declining. And if we have a weakening world economy and, and a severely weakening economy in other parts of the world like Europe and Asia, uh, then I think uh, we likely have some credit event on top of that. Then we will see uh, that the Fed will have to change. And what might a credit event look like in China? I think the biggest problem is really Asia and particularly China, because China has gone through the biggest credit boom ever seen in the history of, um, of uh, uh, mankind. And, and we are at the end of that, and we already see the fallout of it in that real estate prices, and we have a vacancy rate of about 20%, where real estate prices are going down. And the banking system has um, 2% equity capital. Non-performing loans officially are at 1.8% or something like that. And I think unofficially they are twice that. So that means that the banking system is basically wiped out. And, and therefore, the banking system could not even finance another growth period, even if they want it. It's impossible. And, and based on all this, I think the credit event, if it happens, will most likely uh, materialize in China. So unlike in the U.S., the banking system in China is, uh, you know, the government has a lot of control of it. So and, and, uh, hypothetically, a bailout would be much easier. But you mentioned earlier that you think such a bailout of printing money would uh, devalue the renminbi, the, the Chinese yuan. Uh, that's really interesting because the you know China historically has run a current account surplus, meaning the the yuan would be strong, uh, but they've recycled that by buying a lot of treasuries. So would is it possible that the China could sell its treasuries in order to make sure that yuan wouldn't depreciate if it had to bail out its banking system? Well, actually, the Chinese haven't bought treasuries for quite some time. Uh, what they have done with the with the surpluses that they created through the current account surpluses is really that they paid back uh, US dollar denominated loans. Uh, this, you know, and that replacing US dollar denominated loans that were not in the statistics by renminbi denominated loans gave you the impression that they have high credit growth and that's why many people have been bullish on the recovery in China because they saw those numbers, but it was all misleading. And, and I think the Chinese uh, will not put uh, more money into uh, US treasuries. I think they uh, are a net seller of US treasuries and they will buy eventually commodities. The problem is if they really bailed out the system in a major way by printing a lot of money, uh, they would weaken their currency dramatically. And, you know, last time in uh, 94, the uh, Chinese currency devalued by 50%. And a few years later, we had a huge crisis throughout all of Asia. They do not want to do that. And, and of course, they have um, um, a closed 
uh, closed uh, currency system because they have capital controls. But still, there is an offshore uh, renminbi that you un, that you can trade, and it would go down, and it would lead to a spiking uh, bond yields and interest rates, etc. Because the market would still operate it as it would in the Western world, maybe to a slightly uh, uh, lesser degree, but still, uh, I think that would be horrible. So I think what they will do is they will try to use government entities and they will try to restructure companies and separate them and split them and sell individual parts and go and let some go bankrupt and actually they would be very capitalist in that sense they would let um, uh, equity owners go bust and lose everything that's the way we should do it that's the way we have forgotten to do in the western world <laughs> you know so so i i i think they will do the right thing but they cannot just go full speed money printing as a Western central bank would do. They, they simply cannot do that. And what would force the Federal Reserve to pivot? If there was a credit event in Europe where the U.S. has a very friendly relationship with Europe, you, know, you imagine Christine Lagarde, ECB president, might call Fed, Fed Chair Jay Powell and say, you need to slow down the brakes. But as chi- uh, relationships between U.S. and China are very frosty and you know no longer uh, allies, and, and it's very much in question, why why wouldn't the Federal Reserve say, hey, you know that's that's China's problem? At what point would it be would China's problem become the world's problem and the Fed's problem? Well, at the current time, uh, China and the U.S. Uh, are still uh, in contact, uh, and at the recent G20 meeting, what I understand is uh, they discussed. Uh, how China could um, support its economy and the U.S. would uh, be quiet on the Taiwan issue uh, until election of 24 is over. You, you know, so I, I think they are still talking and they both have an interest to not let the global system go down. Uh, they, both have, they both have a clear interest in that and therefore I think there will be a cooperation. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. Curve Card has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. Curve Card also has a feature called Go Back in Time where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after actually. A key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something, but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve, go to fgpodcast.link forward slash curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. CurveCard is powered by Hatch Bank. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's get back to the interview. Felix, if I were to ask you, if, if, as the China has become so dominant in the world economy, one would think that the stock market, which should reflect economic growth and profits, would be very positive too. And, and it was in the first half of this, you know, the first eight years of uh, this millennia, this century. Um, but, you know, since 2009 or 10, the Chinese stock market returns have been quite mediocre. And particularly over the past year and a half, there has been a, quite an epic crash in, in the Chinese mar- market. To, to what do you attribute that? And, and do you have an outlook on, on Chinese equities? 
when you look at Chinese equities and you try to find the correlation with the Chinese economy, you don't find any. It doesn't correlate. Uh, and, uh, and the Chinese stock market to Chinese investors has never been important because uh, uh, two-thirds of the Chinese savings are invested in the real estate market, which used to be a very good investment for a while. It's not so good any longer because the real estate market is uh, in decline and uh, correcting. Uh, but I, I think the stock market in this economy that is uh, still an autocratic system uh, doesn't play as important a role as in a Western democratic open open uh, capitalist system. It, it's different. Uh, I um, uh, you know I do not see any correlations. I see that there are some great companies, but I do not know whether the conflict uh, will intensify and someday we will see the same result as with Russian equities. You know there were people saying buy Russian oil stocks because they are damn cheap. Now, you know what? The oil price went up and the stocks got cheaper. Uh, they are worthless for the Westerners uh, at the present time. So we do not know what that will mean for China, whether that it will come to that point or not. That's not the desire of China. That is the decision of the West. And the Western decisions recently, since the war broke out in Ukraine or Russia invaded Ukraine, since then, you see the biggest loser of the whole situation is not Russia, uh, it is Europe. Europe is suffering the worst. Europe has much higher energy prices than, uh, than anybody else in the world because Europe has no uh, self-sufficient energy, supp energy supply. Uh, it depends on, um, on Russia, uh, which is out now. They sanctioned or boycotted it. Uh, and depend on the Middle East. And the Middle East is not as friendly anymore to the Western world as it used to be. When, when Biden asked um, the, the Saudi ruler uh, to increase production, they reduced it by 2 million barrels a day. You know, that has never, never happened before. And you can see uh, the struggle Europe is going through just in the currency. The euro has been extremely weak. A year ago, when we spoke, you were bearish on the euro, but were you? Were, did you? You expected the, bear, the euro to decline, but did you expect it to be as weak as it has been in 2022? And what might the European Central Bank do to strengthen the euro? If it, if it raises interest rates to a sufficiently high level, will that attract capital back in and, and make the euro strong, or, or is there is there less hope than that? There is simply no way that the Europeans could make the euro strong. If the euro strengthens, it is because the dollar weakens. But, uh, but the, the Europeans have no option to strengthen the US dollar, to, to strengthen the euro uh, by uh, the means of uh, tightening monetary policy or so. If they hiked interest rate too much and if they went to quantitative tapering, uh, then you would probably see some of the governments go bust. So they, they are trapped. They cannot do that. All you see uh, when you see a strengthening euro, it's basically a reflection of a weakening U.S. dollar. Mm. Because, the, 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 you know, the euro is a misconstruction. It is a, it is a, a monetary union of 19 countries in the meantime. Uh, I think the euro... Uh, level as well as the level of interest rates and the degree of uh, policies is wrong for all 19. 
it may be, even if it was okay for the average, there is nobody at the average, you know, <laughs> and therefore it is a, it is a dumb uh, misconstruction and it will do uh, a lot of havoc uh, to the European economy because there is no economy out there with a structurally weak currency and prosperity in the long run. Thanks. So I may ask the question in reverse. Why has the U.S. dollar been strong? Is it because the U.S. economy is strong? Is it because the, the Fed has hiked interest rates so much? Is it because the global economy is so weak? What do you think? And what's your outlook well, on but, but, Well, usually the U.S. dollar strengthens. Uh, it's an anti-cyclical anti, uh, uh, currency. When the world economy weakens, the U.S. dollar strengthens. Uh, and that is because uh, when you tighten mon money supply on a worldwide basis, the U.S. dollar global liquidity tightens. And when it tightens, there is not enough dollars around in the world, and therefore somebody is short and must buy dollars. And the reverse is true. Once the world economy expands, then the system creates more and more dollars. It's not the central banks. It's the banking system. The credit system creates more and more dollars. And as it creates more and more dollars, the dollar weakens. So that's the first thing. The second thing why it strengthened was in at the beginning of 21, uh, the, Jap the Chinese government uh, told their corporations to reduce their U.S. dollar-denominated loans by 25% because they have huge bank loans outstanding of short-term nature. And uh, we do not know the exact number. Uh, the, the Chinese mentioned once uh, 3 trillion, uh, but it could be 6 trillion uh, easily. Uh, we, we always found out uh, in previous Asian crises that uh, the number has usually always been twice as high as it has been disclosed before. So. They had, to, they had to buy dollars to pay back their dollar-denominated bank loans. That strengthened the demand for dollars and strengthened the dollar. And, uh, and, if, that, and if the U.S. banks decide we, are, we have too much risk out there, or we go uh, slower, we tighten the credit standards, and we, call, we do not roll some of the bank loans out there to China or to intermediaries, European banks that eventually lend out to the emerging economies of which China is the biggest one, uh, then of course, everybody out there in the world has to buy US dollars and then the US dollar strengthens. It has nothing to do or not much to do with the uh, health of the US economy. It has much more to do with the decision of the US banks and that, of course, depends on their assessment of the U.S. economy and the world economy. What is your outlook on bond yields? Uh, you know, when, when the economy is weak, typically bond yields go down. When they're strong, when inflation is high, they, they go up. I mean, w one thing that really stuck out to me is just the, the very big bear market in uh, bonds globally. Um, do, do you think that was was that because inflation was so high? Inflation surprised to the upside. Is it more due to technical factors? And what is your outlook going forward on like uh, treasuries? Well, you know, our governments uh, thought that they had found the financial perpetuum mobile, uh, 
uh, and and they could uh, just underwrite the economy at any price, at any amount, with any amount, and go into debt, any amount, you just name it, and the central bank will buy all the paper, and there we go, you know, easy. And as long as interest rates, uh, for reasons that, uh, that I do not want to go into now, have been staying low, that worked. But that worked only up to a certain time. When, when then, came, then came the lockdown period. And in the lockdown period, uh, the different nations had supplied money to consumers to support the economy and strengthen demand. And on the other side, due to the lockdown, supply was constrained. And so supply went down, demand went up, and therefore, in an environment of too large um, a monetary framework that was pumped up over the years, you had higher prices. And, uh, and, and, and the companies all took advantage of it, and that's why the profit margin of the corporate sector has been going up and not going down in the difficult period since 2020. Um, I think that modus operandi has ended because we have had inflation, and I think this was the first wave of a longer inflation cycle. And uh, we will have declining inflation in most of 23 for the reasons I said before. But if the, if the Fed pivots, as we expect, then the excess liquidity that will be created eventually will flow into all the assets that are scarce. Scarcity is, uh, is the key word. And those will be the commodities where there is a tremendous underinvestment or where there is a um, controlled supply due to the conflict of the two systems, like oil, things like that. And if that happens, the commodity prices will go up uh, in the second half of 23 and through 24, maybe into 25. And we could see uh, the price of oil trading at uh, $150, $200 in 24. And if that's the case, then we have double-digit inflation rates in 2024, 20, 25. And at that point of time, I do not believe that bond yields will stay low. They will go up. However, I think there is a window opening for maybe six months or so in 23, uh, when the economy weakens, when the inflation rate declines, and when the central banks begin to open the spigots again, that we have a decline of maybe 100, 150, or even 200 basis points in long-term bond deals. But this is just a counter-trend move within a longer-term move to much higher levels of uh, treasury yields. You know, treasuries could trade at uh, 8 to 10 percent in 25. Our governments are just building up the tower of debt and there are no buyers. You know, uh, the, you only have the buyers that have to buy, like uh, insurance companies have to buy some. You had foreign central banks, they will not buy treasuries anymore. Uh, I think those on the other side, in the other block, the autocratic block, they will instead of buying dollars and U.S. treasuries, they will buy commodities and store it inside their own nation. Oil, gold, copper, what have you. And, and that is safer for them than all of a sudden wake up one morning and, giving, and 
getting a message that oh your assets are frozen you see uh, and and i think in that sense we are entering a very volatile we have entered a very volatile world and and i use the phrase that this decade will be the phrase of roller coasters and we have now rolled down uh, i think in 23 with the low in the first part of the year we will then run up uh, into 24 and after that i think we will have a big decline again so this is very challenging for investors because you cannot sit with a 60 40 portfolio and expect the decent returns that you could achieve in the last 15 years that game is over so on a long-term basis you remain very bearish on bonds and, and treasuries but on a three to six yeah. month basis you are bullish and i think it's, it's very good that you outline quite clearly your, your time horizons my question is how bullish are you if the economy slows only mildly and we have a mild recession in the u.s maybe you know the the bonds only rally a, a, a few basis points or you know 50 basis points but if we have a monumental recession, I imagine they must rally more. Uh, ju just how bullish are you on, on treasuries in the, over the next half year and, and why? Okay, first of all, I think for the next two months or so, I think treasury bond yields will go up because uh, the treasury is far behind in uh, issuing uh, paper and they have drawn down uh, the general account at the, at the Fed and, and they have to replenish that account and they have to uh, finance their growing deficits. And therefore, I think they, the, the market will be hit by a huge supply of treasuries. And that means higher yields over the next uh, four to eight weeks. And, and that could lead to uh, treasury yields going up near the former high of 430 or where we were, were, were for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and from there... I would expect a decline of uh, 150 basis points, perhaps even a bit more, for a six-month period, and that's it. It's a counter-trend move. Sharp, short, impressive, but counter to the underlying fundamental trend, which is rising over the next few years. Thank you. So next four to eight weeks, treasuries could rally, excuse me, treasuries could sell off, tenure could go up to as high as of, of 430 basis points, that, but then after that, you can have a rally for the next half year down to, I, I guess that is uh, 280 basis points. Uh, but after that, very bearish. Yes. Yes. From, 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 two, 280, from 280 to 820. <laughs> you just... <laughs> something like that. And it will be over several years. You know, we, we have learned in the 1970s, and I lived through that period, in the first wave of rising inflation, bonds suffered but relatively mildly and what we saw this time was relatively mildly of course it was a big move because yields were so low but mm -hmm. yes. they only went to 430 when inflation was at nine at over nine percent uh, so that was relatively mildly i think in the next wave of inflation that will not be the case i think in the next wave of inflation the gap between inflation and the treasury bond yield, the long bond yield, will be narrower than this time. That means bond yield will so, bonds will suffer even more in the next cycle. That's from, let's say, second half of 23 uh, into 25. Mm. 
So that's the longer end of the yield curve, longer duration government bonds. What about the shorter end, which is very influenced by the Federal Reserve? The overnight rate is now at uh, 4%, and the Federal Reserve has been hiking by 75, 75, 75. In later next week, and as a matter of fact, they are widely you know, known to hike by 50 basis points to, to uh, 4.50%. How high do you think they get? When do they get to 25? Uh, When do they stay? And also, you said that the Fed pivot might come as early as the first quarter of 2023, which is is quite close. What would that pivot look like? Would it look like a return to quantitative easing, a cessation of quantitative tightening, uh, merely stop? What is a pivot? You know, because people throw around the word pivot, but does it mean only hiking by 25? Does it mean not hiking? Does it mean cutting? Uh, what, What does that look like? Well, the honest answer is I do not know the details, but, uh, uh, you know, if I were Jay Powell, I would look at the situation and say, how do we help uh, the world uh, financial uh, system uh, the best? Of course, we stop tightening. We stop the tapering. Uh, We stop the tapering. Uh, We reduce reverse repos uh, dramatically, Uh, and they have uh, 2.9 trillion out there. So they could easily uh, reduce that by uh, by a trillion or, uh, or or two trillion even, and uh, and they could even uh, uh, cut interest rates by uh, fifty basis points. I also think that they will make a fifty point hike uh, next week, uh, but I think that should be it for the cycle. And I no think twenty five. Free- no twenty five in February. I don't think so. I think oh, wow. uh, we are already deep into the problems in February. And, uh, and <laughs> you know, I could be wrong, but that's my assessment. And, and I think the free market rates in the money market, they are already topping. I think that's, uh, that's the end of this first cycle. And, uh, and then we go down into uh, late 23, something like that. So 23 will be a year of um, a weak world economy, uh, particularly the first half. Uh, the U.S. Uh, could be the weakest two quarters, could be in the middle, the middle two quarters. Uh, and I think uh, towards the end of 23, the world economy will recover. And the liquidity cycle runs ahead of that, and so will the financial markets. And therefore, I think... Uh, you know, in uh, in March we have um, major trading cycles. The 40-week trading cycle uh, uh, is due for a bottom. Uh, the 80-week trading cycle and the 160-week trading cycle they are all due for an important bottom, and that's why I think it could happen around that time, later in Q1. Uh, I could be wrong by uh, a few weeks, uh, but but I accept it. I can live with that. <laughs> There we go. Uh, so, Felix, we covered the long end of the yield curve, the short end. What about the spread? Uh, people on Twitter knew I was doing this interview, and you know, people really want to hear what you have to say. Uh, people want to hear about now that the yield curve is inverted. Uh, what does that? What are you looking at, and uh, how much does that matter? I think the spread between the ten-year Treasury and the two-year Treasury close to 80 basis points, which I believe is the biggest inversion since 1981. Obviously, pretty much every recession in the U.S. has been preceded by a yield curve inversion. Uh, does, uh, yeah, what, what does that say about the where we are in the cycle for the economy, stocks, and bonds? 
Well, it, it says exactly what I'm telling you, that it's late in the cycle, it's late in the bear cycle, it's late in the liquidity cycle. We are approaching the end of it. I was very bearish a year ago. Uh, I'm still bearish, but I'm opening up uh, and prepare myself and my subscribers uh, for a bullish reversal, uh, sometimes in the first few months of uh, next year. And, and of course, uh, the yield curve will also change. It will uh, also reverse and normalize. Uh, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm expecting. Yes, the chronology of, of this will be very classic, very conventional. Um, it's, it's just that most people are familiar and know how bull markets work and they do not know so well how bear markets work. And it's very normal, you know, uh, bull and bear markets are a result of uh, the liquidity cycle, the economy and people managing uh, the central banks. And they all are part of nature and nothing in nature is linear. So if you buy if you buy assets uh, 15 years out and 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 believing that it's going to be up in a linear way, that's not the way the world works. It goes through cycles. And we have had a down cycle, which is in the later stage, and I'm looking forward to an up cycle. I know um, uh, in the media uh, I have a label of a bear. That's not true. It's just because I'm as outspoken uh, in the bear markets as I am in the bull markets. But in bull markets, nobody wants to listen to me. They listen to the classic bulls, uh, which is fine with me. So if we're in the final phase of a bear market, what does that look like? You said we're, we're late cycle. The, so far, let's say it called phase one of this bear market has been stocks selling off a little bit. Yes, there are crashes in individual stocks, but the S&P 500 is not down 5% in a day. Uh, the VIX is you know, range bound. It's very hard for the VIX to get above 40. Uh, the, the, correlation, or sort of the correlations between stocks are... Um, uh, not as strong. So if, if one stock is crashing, another stock is, is going up. So uh, the whole index is, is not crashing. Uh, now that we're, you say we're in the, the late stage of this cycle, is it going to be different where everything's going to fall sharply at once and you know, the VIX finally might get, uh, go up because people want to buy protection, people get fear? You know, how, how severe do you think this, you, you said you're bearish, but is it going to be an orderly decline that we've seen so far this year or is it going to be a true crash? Um, I doubt it will be a crash, but it will be a severe decline uh, and the decline could go into the low 3000. That was my goal uh, uh, when I turned bearish a year ago, uh, that we go into the low 3000. We are now uh, in the upper 3000, so there is still uh, uh, quite a distance to go and it will be painful. And some stocks will decline less and some others will decline more. And they will not all make their lows at the same day and in the same minute. It will be through a process of uh, a few weeks, maybe, maybe two or three weeks. And then it will turn around. But, but I'm following the index because the index is where you eventually get measured against. And I'm looking for uh, buying opportunities. Uh, uh, so the decline could be quite severe. As I said, the decline into... Uh, October, early October, was a decline based on uh, valuation correction uh, due to the rising interest rates. I think the decline that we see now to the final low will be the decline based on um, earnings guidance to the downside and, uh, and uh, 
disappointing earnings. Felix, uh, there's someone who asked on, on Twitter, they want to know, do you think that gold could be used as a payment mechanism for oil? I don't see that. Uh, I, uh, I, I think gold uh, will uh, take on a bigger role again in central bank reserves than it has in the last, uh, since the early 70s. So a bigger, more prominent role. And I think gold will be an important asset to own. I think gold is in a bottoming process, uh, stretching through the first quarter. Uh, we could uh, have a relapse uh, down to the lows we have seen, but, but I'm quite constructive on gold and I think it will then rise for several years. And uh, silver will probably even outperform gold because I think we are in a decade where stuff, hard stuff, outperforms financial assets. So I think the commodity cycle will be even more important than the equity market cycle. And, uh, and, and that's important. So, no, I do not see that that will be the case. You know that uh, China is working on an alternative currency that is not fiat. Uh, that could be used for settlement of trades. And I think that will eventually come uh, uh, probably around the middle of this decade and uh, will be used for settlement in trading uh, in Asia first, and then it may spread throughout the world because China knows it has to reduce the role of the US dollar in the world to weaken the US relative to China. Mm. It's part of that conflict that I, that I alluded to at the beginning. So cryptocurrency, Felix, I'll ask you one question about crypto. Uh, trading very much in line with liquidity. So this year, liquidity has been very bad. So cryptos have sold off, performing like a risk asset. Do you expect that to continue? And if so, when there is a central bank pivot, do you think that crypto might perform? First of all, I'm not an expert on uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, I, I have problem to understand the intrinsic value of cryptos. Uh, uh, one cryptocurrency or maybe two or three I could understand the intrinsic value because you had a limited supply, but when you all of a sudden have, instead of two or three, 15,000 of different cryptos, I don't, see the, I don't see the game anymore. You know, this is inflation by itself. So I, I have a problem with the inherent value. Uh, we were lucky, and despite the fact that I'm not the crypto expert, we... Um, issued a sell recommendation to our subscribers when uh, Bitcoin traded at 60,000. Uh, and, and we based that on uh, the changing liquidity situation and some of the technical stuff, uh, trend and momentum reading and, and reading the sentiment in the markets. And it worked out very well. I do believe that there will be a buying um, opportunity uh, for traders uh, sometimes in the first few months of next year. But I'm not sure that the cryptos will go back to the highs they have seen in the last cycle. I, I'm not sure about that. Usually, the prominent asset class that had the wildest performance on the upside and then crashes is usually an underperformer in the next cycle. But an underperformer also means that it could double in price, but it's still far below the highs that it has been. So. You could you could uh, get an attractive return, but if you hope to get it back to the highs where it has been to, that's probably uh, 
that's probably too much. I, I don't see that. Wow, Felix, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure getting a chance to hear your insights. Um, your, your, if people want to you know, hear more of your insights in depth, uh, where can they find your work uh, from, from Zulov Consulting? It's uh, www.felixzulov.com. And there you can, uh, you can request uh, whatever your uh, request is. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Felix. You're most welcome, Jack. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, you can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. That's uh, Podbean as in on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Thanks for watching.